Hey, it's Martine Powers, host of Post Reports. If you value this podcast and you would like to support the reporting behind it, I would like to ask you to consider a subscription to The Washington Post. A subscription gets you unlimited access to everything we publish, from breaking news to hard-hitting investigative journalism to baking tips. It also directly supports this show and the work of Washington Post journalists around the world who are working to uncover the next big story. Right now, podcast listeners can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. That is less than a dollar a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That is WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe, or click the link in today's show notes. I hope you'll consider it, and thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 14th. Today, a Christian group faces a reckoning over sexual misconduct and the extraordinary effort to get kids back in school. So when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated to the Supreme Court, this had an impact on a number of people who had left people of praise. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post. She spoke to editor Alexis Diao about reporting that she's been doing on the insular Christian group called People of Praise. The nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court in 2020 brought more attention and scrutiny to this group. Now, a group of former members say that they were abused as children by other members of the community. And just a heads up, this story contains descriptions of sexual assault that might be disturbing for listeners. They had never you know, spoken about this before. So when Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, all of these feelings that they had had about their childhood sort of came up. And even though Amy Coney Barrett was not necessarily at fault or had anything to do with these people's specific claims, her ascendancy to the court caused them to kind of confront these memories and and come together and decide that they wanted to really demand answers from people of praise and try to seek some accountability. Tell me, who are the people of praise? What is this community? Who are they? And, you know, what do they believe? The people of praise is a small Christian group. They have branches across the country, but the community is predominantly, I'd say, in in the Minneapolis area and in South Bend, Indiana. That's where their sort of headquarters are. And they are overseen by an all-male board of governors. They have um, sort of traditional views on the role of women in society. People are assigned, at a young age, they are assigned an advisor. Women have female advisors, men have male advisors. And then once women are married, their husband becomes their advisor, who's called a head. And they believe in this concept of headship in which this person advises you on secular matters like buying a car or taking a new job, but also spiritual matters. And they're a very tightly knit community. They have been around since the early 70s, but they're not very well known. And 
Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court last year, her deep roots in this community uh, really put them on the map. And what is Amy Coney Barrett's relation to this community, People of Praise? She was raised in a People of Praise community in Louisiana. She then uh, went to law school at Notre Dame and joined the South Bend branch and has been active in the South Bend branch for many years. Her family is active. Her children attend Trinity Schools, which is the network of schools that People of Praise operates across the country. They have three campuses and Amy Coney Barrett also served on the board of Trinity Schools for a couple years. She's also held leadership roles. She was a handmaid, um, which was the term that the community used to use for a female advisor. They no longer use that word, but her position is is one that is a leadership position that women are are eligible for. And Beth, you've been doing reporting on some pretty serious allegations against this group, People of Praise. Tell me how you came across this story. So when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, poised to be nominated to the Supreme Court, a number of former members started to think about painful experiences that had happened to them as children, sexual abuse, physical abuse. They came together in a private Facebook group. The group included former members in uh, the Minneapolis area and Indiana, where People of Praise is based. So there are about three dozen people in this particular Facebook group. I talked to maybe a dozen of them. About nine of them say they were sexually abused as children. And maybe half of those folks then say that the abuse was reported to people in the community and was uh, overlooked or ignored. Beth, can you tell me some of the stories that you heard from these women? So one of the women I talked to, her name is Katie Logan. She's now 37 years old and lives in the Minneapolis area. And she attended Trinity School, the the school that's run by People of Praise. And her family belonged to the community. And uh, just a couple weeks after she graduated from high school, One of her teachers, a very popular teacher in the school, Dave Beskar, she says, showed up at her door unexpectedly and said he was there to use the family's computer. So he did that. They hung out. They had a couple beers and she felt kind of flattered by this attention from this popular teacher. He came back the next day. Her parents were out of town for the weekend. And also, you know, use the computer again, only this time, she says, he then, you know, sat down next to her on the couch, pressed up against her and uh, penetrated her with his finger. And, you know, this is, this is a trauma that has stuck with her now for, for, for decades. She told her friends, she told her family members, she reported it to the school five years later And yet the teacher remained at the school for several more years, went on to lead a school in Arizona, and then went back to Minnesota to lead another Christian school. And it wasn't until very recently that he was put on indefinite leave of absence because of the questions coming from the Washington Post and the fact that 
the former student, who's now a grown woman of 37 years old, had gone to police uh, 20 years after uh, this alleged incident. And Beth, in your reporting, did you guys attempt to reach out to Katie's teacher? Did you guys get a response either from him or any of the schools that he had worked for? So we know that he denied her allegation to police. We have a summary of the police report and we have an audio recording of his interview with police where he denies that any kind of inappropriate behavior occurred. So she said, you know, that this happened. Uh, You guys were sitting on the blue couch down in the basement and she was in shock and um, completely unable to speak for a little bit of time. And then... um, pulled back and said, okay, that's enough, you know, to try and kind of minimize Mm -hmm. the awkwardness of Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And you ended up leaving a short time later. Um, And she had said that you would ask to come back the next day as well, but she was gone Mm -hmm. uh, purposely not so as to have you not come home, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. come back to the house. Um, What do you make of this? Well, I know the second and that third day did not happen. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely not true. Okay. Um, again, that the one day I was there, uh, again, I'm confident it was Catherine who opened the door, used the computer, left, mm-hmm. um, never came back a second day, never went downstairs to wherever that was supposed mm-hmm. to be, um, never did the other things uh, to Katie. Uh, So, no, um, that's not true. The Post also reached out to him directly. He didn't respond to my calls. I knocked on his door in the Minneapolis area. He asked me to leave. And can you tell me any of the other women that you spoke to, some of their stories? So... A couple of the other women that I talked to say they were molested as children by someone living, quote, in household, which meant there were single men who lived with their family when they were kids. And this is part of the sort of communal living arrangements that people of praise encourages. So, you know, a single person is living with family and can maybe help out with with chores and childcare and learn about how to run a household. That's sort of the idea behind it. A couple of the women I talked to, though, had these older men living in their home who were not members of their family, and they say sexual abuse occurred. A woman who's quoted in the story is Sarah Kuehl. She was the former People of Praise member who really kind of set off this whole reckoning When Amy Coney Barrett was close to being nominated, she wrote a letter to the head of the community saying, I was molested by someone who lived with my family in the 70s. And when my parents brought this to your attention later on, you all allowed him to continue living in the community, participating in in religious gatherings and in social gatherings. Sarah took this man to court because she was frustrated with the way People of Praise was handling the situation. And as a result of that court case, he was required to uh, undergo a psychological assessment in which he acknowledged having abused a minor. And the assessment concluded that he needed treatment for pedophilia. 
but the community had never said to her, you know, we, we should have handled that differently. What has been the response from people of praise? H- have they responded to any of these allegations? They have. They've hired lawyers who are uh, conducting interviews of these former members about what, what they say happened to them. They're identifying people, uh, friends and family who can corroborate their stories. They're identifying people they said harmed them and uh, sharing all that information with these lawyers that People of Praise has hired um, and says they are conducting independent investigations and they're encouraging people to come forward. And People of Praise says they see men and women as equals and they take these complaints of abuse very seriously. And, you know, sort of the broader context for this is you know, it's, it's 2021 and we saw the Me Too movement kind of take off at the end of 2017. And we've seen how as the months and years go by, it sort of rolls over different institutions, whether they're religious institutions or corporations or different communities. It's been their turn to kind of confront uh, how they've treated women, how they've treated women that have been harassed or, or abused. And so what sort of forced people of praise to face that was the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett because her nomination brought these former um, members who survived abuse together. And now they're trying to, you know, demand that accountability. And what have you learned about the culture of this community when it comes to, you know, speaking about and addressing these kinds of issues? So one of the principles in People of Praise is about gossip, that you don't gossip about other people in the community, um, which, you know, obviously is is well-intentioned. However, these victims of abuse felt like that principle had made them feel like they were not allowed to make accusations, that they were supposed to, you know, stay silent and not accuse someone who had um, had harmed them because that would be considered gossip. There was, was also a lot of emphasis on forgiveness as a Christian principle. The women talk about the shame that they felt after being abused, and they attribute that in part to the way they were raised, that girls are supposed to be very careful with how they dress and how they handle themselves around boys. They're not allowed to date. They're not supposed to do anything that might attract attention, uh, unwanted attention. And they felt a sort of sense of responsibility for warding off male advances. And so then when something did happen to them, they felt all this shame and fear and in many cases felt unable to tell anyone because it would somehow reflect badly on them. I'm curious in your conversations with these women that you spoke with, what is it that they feel like they need at this point? I think these women are looking for validation. They have long harbored these, you know, painful secrets. In some cases, they shared the secrets and were kind of brushed aside. And so what they are hoping for is someone in the People of Praise leadership to acknowledge what they went through 
and ideally take responsibility if if it had been brought to the attention of, of leadership, you know, hey, we should have handled this differently. And this is what we're going to do in the future when we get these kind of complaints. So that's really what what the folks in this Facebook group are, are trying to accomplish. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post. Alexis Diao is an editor for Post Reports. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. And now, one more thing from education reporter Hannah Natanson. A couple weeks ago, I got up early on a Tuesday morning and went out with a elementary school principal, Kelly Shears, who heads West Springfield Elementary, as she drove around and visited the homes of dozens of her students who are learning virtually. She heads about a 565 student elementary school. It's in a lovely little neighborhood, actually, in Northern Virginia, which is where we were driving all around. And like principals and teachers and superintendents everywhere, she's thinking about the fall right now and how she can get children back for in-person learning, which educators see as the best possible way to catch up students who may have fallen behind. I'm seeing you. And by the time that we were driving around, she had actually already managed to convince the vast majority of her students to come back, often by personal phone calls with the parents if parents are feeling hesitant. But she just wanted to go around and see these virtual learners anyway because they haven't been in school buildings for more than a year. And she knows they have all these questions and concerns about coming back. And so she was just there to allay fears, make totally sure that they felt comfortable coming back and show the parents that when their kids do come back, she'll be right there helping them every step of the way. She really emphasized, you know, the safety stuff, how they're going to keep kids safe and how before school starts, they're going to have an orientation where you just get to walk around and see like, this is where my classroom is and this is where the cafeteria is. Because for these kids, they haven't been in school in a really long time and some of them have never been in school. Well, we will make sure because you two have never been in our building then, right? So we'll make sure when school gets closer to starting that we have an opportunity for you to come in and, and like learn where your classroom is, see your teacher, figure out where everything is before school starts. Because I know that can be a little overwhelming, right? She did congratulate each kid on, like, how hard they'd worked during online school and told them how difficult it was for them to have to do that. But I'm very proud of you, and learning virtually I know is hard, but you guys have done remarkable things. She wanted to just do everything possible to tailor the visit to make the kid know that there's someone who cares about them and say, like, I am not just, like, an abstract concept. I am here. I know your name. Like, I am learning things about you because I am here And I will be there in the fall for you, too. And she said she's been able to, like, learn some really wonderful things about 
kids this way that she never knew, which she called sort of like a silver lining of doing these visits, which was a pretty exhaustive. It was like 50 families in total. For one kid, for example, she told me she learned that he had memorized the first 60 pages of the Quran and won a big award for that. And she also, you know, in another household, she learned that a kindergartner had actually learned how to write. And that was huge. I'm proud of my writing, and I'm actually good at spelling. I'm the best speller out of the kids. Ooh, elbow bomb! Oh my goodness, that's awesome! Can I give you uh, something to spell? What I've heard from talking to this principal and to other educators uh, in different school systems is that a lot of the hesitancy might come from families where there's an immunocompromised family member or the kid is immunocompromised. In some cases, it's more general because the vaccine still isn't available to very, very young kids. So the families where the kids is going to be going into school and isn't going to be vaccinated. For some households, uh, that's really alarming, understandably. They're also nervous for their kids because it's, especially for younger kids, it's been so long now in this other kind of environment. It is a question of like, how is the return going to go over? So I think it was very reassuring to see the principal cognizant that it's not going to be just roses, the transition back. I think my biggest takeaway after going along with her and then talking to a bunch of other principals and superintendents across the country who are doing similar things is that educators at the end of a totally exhausting year are somehow yet again making a ridiculous push and investing a ridiculous amount of hours to try to get their families back because a lot of them the majority, I think, is pretty fair to say, just feel that in-person learning is better than online learning and that the only way to catch kids up is to get them back in classrooms. And so even though they're really tired and it would be nice to take a break right now, teachers are texting and calling parents and showing up at doors. Superintendents are knocking on doors, too. And they're just pouring all of this extra time and hours to reaching these families now is when people are submitting their preferences for next fall. Now is when they have all the families or most of the families sort of engage with the school system and things could drop off during the summer. So they want to reach them now. But the level of effort and care and intensity is astonishing. Hannah Natanson is an education reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Sabby Robinson. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Swernovsky. If this podcast is a valuable part of your life, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. Right now, our listeners can get a year of unlimited access to everything we publish for just $29. The link to that deal is in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 